0: What's up, friends? Hey, let's try that one more time. Hey, you are in competition against the first service, okay? Uh, good morning, friends. Good morning. There you go. You are, you are inching your way there. You're getting more competitive. Hey, we are so glad to uh, be hanging out with you this morning. Uh, what a pleasure it is to be able to sing together about a God who loves us and uh, just to thank him for all that he's given us and even just a second ago as we were partnering together and singing, I just had this thought, hey, what if God gave us everything that we had thanked him for this morning? There's a lot of us that we may not have much uh, because we don't thank him near enough. And so may thankfulness just be a part of our daily lives as we express our um, our love and appreciation to a God who is so generous and gracious to us, right? Um, this morning, we're going to continue a series called Spiritual Warfare. We're going to wrap it up next week. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. And as you're turning there, before we dive in, I want to give just a couple moments of a commercial break that is going to be something that impacts everyone in this room. And so I want to share it with you. Uh, I'm going to give you uh, the update, and then I'm going to ask uh, something of you. And so I encourage you to be paying very close attention. Um, in the month of December, uh, there's really a handful of weekends in which we are going to move from this series called... Um, whatever this is called, spiritual warfare. Uh, We're going to move from spiritual warfare to a series called Better Together. And when we do the series Better Together, we're going to just remind everyone that's a part of Stone Point as to why we exist, what God is calling us to, and then how we can be better aligned in those purposes. It's going to be a series that I believe you'll want to be a part of. But the significant change for you, and it does impact you in a lot of ways, is that the times are not going to change, but the location is. And so December 4th, 11th, and 18th, we will not meet here on the Wills Point campus. We will actually meet together, one campus, one location, for those couple of weeks on our Edgewood campus. Uh, The reason we're doing that is multifaceted. One, we're meeting together on the Edgewood campus because believe it or not, that facility is larger than the Wills Point campus. So it allows us to get a few more people together at that particular time and also allows a little bit extra room for our kiddos. Uh, The reason that we're doing that is for really a handful of reasons. One is just for we could be unified in why we exist. But more than that too, alignment on what God has for us in this next season. So it's gonna be an awesome time at Christmas to in some way, have uh, kind of a family gathering, to sing together, to see some people that we don't normally get to see uh, as often. And then more than that, too, just align to our hearts as we embrace the end of this year and really what God's calling us to in 2023. And so here's our ask uh, we're asking that you would remember that, okay? Uh, and so, like, we don't want you showing up week in and week out here and then you're disappointed and you're like, I'm not driving, I'm already late. So, like, one, like, remember we're going to meet there December 4th. 4th, 11th, and 18th. I feel like I'm talking to a bunch of students right now. 11th, 4th, and 18th. Cool? And then here's the deal. When we gather together, uh, we're asking that you would make at least two out of three of those weeks. But I'm going to tell you, I don't think you want to miss any of them. But 4th, 11th, and 18th. One campus, one location in Edgewood. 9 and 10.45 a.m., if for some reason we have to add a service, we'll let you know that on the fly. And so that, that is a possibility. It is going uh, to be something we encourage you to get there a little early for, because parking uh, obviously can be a little bit of a challenge. But we have a good friend that is in the area, and I'm pretty sure we can help park all along that, that place. And so look forward to it. Cool deal? Okay, we're going to transition, moving from Better Together to Spiritual Warfare, week three. Ephesians chapter six, as we do so, let me pray um, just so that I can kind of get on the right track as well. Father in heaven, would you use your word to inform our hearts of who you are and what you want us to do as a result of reading your word. May we not be merely hearers and so deceive ourselves, but God, would you help us to do what it says? Help us to apply this word to our lives in a meaningful way that brings you glory And good to us and those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't know about you, but hopefully you realize that Thanksgiving is upon us. Uh, There's a handful of you that you're like, yes, and I still haven't bought a turkey, and I got people coming over, and I hadn't cleaned the house, and your mind's already kind of thinking about that. When you think about Thanksgiving, there's also something that is also synonymous with Thanksgiving. You may not like it, but it is synonymous, and that is called football. Anybody, you're like, amen. If you're going to say amen today, you're like, amen, okay? Uh, so football. Now, here's the deal. There are some of you in this room that you don't care anything about sports. You're not football people. You're not basketball people. You're not hockey people. But there are some of us in here that you're like, yeah, we like sports. Now, for those of you that don't like sports, just hang with me for just a second because there's a purpose in me telling you this story. In football, like many other sports, you have what's called offense and you have what's called defense. Offense possesses the ball, and ultimately your goal is to score. Whether that's basketball and you're putting it in a bucket and a net, or it's hockey and you're putting in a net, Uh, football is to take it and cross the end zone. That's offense. Likewise, you have what's called defense, which means you're to stop them from scoring, take the ball, and give it to your offense so they go and do their job. And so you've got this game of offense and defense, and typically you have multiple possessions in the game. Each team possesses the ball a fairly equal amount of time. But there was a game in 2017 between Michigan State, they're the Spartans, and they were playing Rutgers. Now, this is a college football game, and in college there's four quarters, but those quarters are 15 minutes in length, which is a little bit longer than high school and quite a bit longer than junior high. 15 minutes in length, that means there's 60 minutes in this game. And what was interesting is that Michigan State set a record just a handful of years ago for possessing the ball longer than any team in NCAA history. They held onto the ball roughly 48 minutes of the 60. That means that Rutgers only touched the ball 12 minutes of an entire game, not even the full length of an entire college quarter. Which you would think, well, that must have been a really ugly score. What's crazy is it was 16 to seven at halftime, 19 to seven at the end of the third quarter. So even though they had the ball, they really struggled to pull out. Eventually, they they won the game by a fairly large margin. It was 40 to seven. But what is unheard of is a team holding onto the ball that length of time. Now, the reason I tell you that is I grew up in a coaching family, and there were times that as a coach and, and living in that house, that as my dad watched film, he recognized that the team he was coaching might've been somewhat outmatched. And the goal when you're outmatched is to hold on to the ball. And so the goal is to keep it as long as you can. You may not can score, but every time you possess the ball, you milk the clock all the way down, you run a play, you do everything you can to not give the opponent an advantage by having an offense. So sometimes your defense is the best offense. And today, that's the message of my, my whole time together is that the best defense is offense. And so let's look at Ephesians chapter six, and hopefully as you leave this morning, you'll know what I'm talking about. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus. He's given them a handful of admonitions and warnings and encouragements. But he gets to Ephesians chapter 6, and in verses 10 and following, he's going to encourage them around the idea of spiritual warfare, and, and namely that of what we oftentimes refer to as the armor of God. And as he does this, he starts in verse 10 and he says, Look, finally, after all of these things I've given you, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He gives an encouragement and he says, Hey, as you receive this from God, receive more than anything his strength. The purpose in Paul writing that sentence is because he wanted his audience and his reader, and namely that of us as well, to realize that when we possess the strength of God, it's not something we muster up ourselves, but it's actually something that is given. Matter of fact, that word in the Greek, verse, uh, in verse 10, finally be strong, is the word oo which literally means to receive this strength. So when Paul says, hey, be strong in the Lord and in in the strength of his might, he is saying, this is something that is given to you as a gift from our holy God. Now you must receive it. Then he moves on and he says, now also put on the whole armor of God. When he uses that word put on, he uses the word uh, in duo, which literally means to sink into. Now growing up, y'all remember the Levi's commercial? And oftentimes they would have a primary figure that was in the Levi's commercial. It could have been a Brett Favre or it could have been Troy Aikman. And and when they had a classic phrase is one of them would put a pant leg on and he would say what? They put their pants on one leg at a time, just like the rest of us. Now, Paul is saying, when you receive the strength of God's might, he goes, you put on the whole armor. The idea there in that word in the Greek means that you step into it. You sink into this. It is something that you embrace and you clothe yourselves in. And the reason that you do that is that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, if you have your Bible, that word schemes there is where we get the English word methods from. The idea is this Greek word schemes is the word methodia, which literally means it is the methods in which our enemy uses. The devil, the accuser, the word there is diabolos. He uses to prevent us from being able to stand solidly or accurately. So what is Paul saying to the church of Ephesus and namely to that of any of us as readers? He's going, look, hey, I want you to finally put on the armor of God. Stand in his strength and his might, which we receive from him, so that you are not confused, so that you are not attacked, so that you are not caught off guard by the devil and his schemes or his methods. And friends, he does have methods. Y'all realize that? And so he goes on and he tells us to that in the midst of these, these methods, he goes, there's a war that's being waged. And so the whole idea of spiritual warfare it comes from this text in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 12. He goes, we do not wrestle against flesh. Now that word flesh is the word uh, sarx, which literally means flesh and blood, bone. And so he goes, it's not about flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers of the present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he goes, this war and this enemy is real. And he goes, but it's not one that you can see and touch. It's one that you cannot see and you cannot touch, but it's happening in the spiritual realm. There was an interviewer, a reporter, and he uh, was interviewing a gentleman who had just celebrated his hundredth birthday. I don't know if y'all realize that every now and then you'll see that on the news. Like they don't have anything else cut to cover, and so they go and they find somebody that's like turning hundred and three, and they sit down with a little interview. And so they, they interview this guy who's turning hundred, and and he goes, "Hey, what like what is the one of the greatest accomplishments that you have thus far in life?" And the hundred year old guy looked at him, and his feeble voice, he says. Well, son, I have no enemies. And that reporter said, that's that's amazing. Like, you're 100 years old and you have no enemies? And he looked at him. and he goes, yeah, it's an amazing thing. I outlived every single one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Now, here's the deal. I want you to realize that you may think, I'm going to outlive my enemies. But there, there are friends, there's one enemy you will not outlive until you put on your next life and then you will outlive him. But as long as you are in flesh and bone, this flesh, this mortal body, you will be wrestling with an enemy who is not of flesh and bone, but is in the spiritual realm. He is the accuser. He is the one who wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. He is the one whose Peter writes in 1 Peter 5 is like a roaring lion. He is looking for someone to devour. And ultimately, Paul's warning to us is that, hey, we need to realize that not only is there a war, but we also need to realize that as long as we're in this earthly body, we do have a legitimate enemy. And he wants to deceive you. And he wants to distort God's truth. And therefore, that's why Paul says, hey, you need to sink into this armor. And then he tells us what the armor is and the one offensive weapon that we need. And in The following verses, 13 and following, Paul is about to tell us what the whole armor of God is. He's going to show us five defensive weapons. He's going to show us one offensive weapon, and he's going to remind us that there's only one commander. And so five defensive weapons, one offensive weapon, and one commander. Now, but what's here's interesting, and this is something that I'm going to challenge you on a little bit, and you're going to have to think about it for yourself, and then you have to come to your own conclusion. But when you see this text, verse 13, he says, Therefore, so as a result of a real enemy, as a result of stepping into the the power and the instruction of God's hope and help in our lives, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand firm. The question that you have to ask yourself is, is when Paul says, put on or step into the armor of God, how often does this happen? Now, this is a text that I think oftentimes is a a primary focus for us as believers. It is one that uh, lends itself to an incredible devotional. Like, I mean, if you are kind of looking for something to write or encouraging people in, man, Ephesians 6 is just a great text to go to. And it's one that you could write a devotional on, But I think oftentimes for me, as I take and and just really break this this passage apart, I think it's oftentimes misconstrued in this way. That when we think about receiving the strength of God and when we think about stepping into his power, we think that it's potentially a daily thing that we just pray on the armor of God. But the question that I have for you is this, is how good is armor on a weak soldier? And it's one that you have to really think through. Is it... Is it good to take a young, feeble, untrained man and put a ton of armor on him and send him to the front line of the battlefield? Is that wise? And the answer is no, it really isn't. It's not wise and ultimately it's not a loving thing to do. And so I think oftentimes when we think about the armor of God, the thing that we're we're, we're primarily missing is who is the armor for? And ultimately, the armor is for a trained man. It is for someone who is ready to go into the battle as opposed to the armor being for someone who is unskilled, untrained, and ill-equipped to go into battle. And so the point of this text, as you think through it, is is not merely to get up every morning and go, you know what, I'm just gonna pray on the armor of God and I'm gonna go out into the world and I'm gonna hope for the best. That's not really what the passage is instructing us to. The passage instructing us to realize that there are things about this armor that we should do every single day as we seek to become God's man or woman, trained and equipped to do his work. Matter of fact, when you look at why God's word is useful in 2 Timothy 316 17, that it it's God-breathed and it's useful for reproof, for correction, for training, uh, ultimately in righteousness, and in verse 17, it's so that every man is equipped for the work of God. What is God's word for? It's so that you and I are ill-equipped, or not ill-equipped, that we are, we are not ill-equipped and that we are ready for any challenge that comes our way. So as a result, the scripture says, hey, there are some tools that you need to have and some resources that are at your disposal. Five defensive weapons, one offensive weapon that you can use as a trained man or woman. And so he just says, put on the whole armor of God. And then he walks through them. Verse 14, he says, stand therefore. That word um, stand is the word that you see multiple times. And it's just the Greek word histami, which literally means to fet- to. to to put your feet on on the ground, and it means to be immovable. Now, what's interesting is when he says, stand therefore, he says, have fastened on the belt of truth. Now, the belt of truth for for us in this text is what is ultimately true. And, And if you were to think about what the belt of truth is, the best way I could explain it to you in just kind of layman's terms where all of us could understand is... The belt of truth is what you would call a spiritual worldview. It's basically what do I believe about God and what do I believe about his word? And so let me just ask you a handful of things. When you think about your Christian worldview, the first question you have to ask yourself is what do I believe about Jesus? And so, like as you think about fastening the belt of truth, you got to ask yourself some questions. Was Jesus, was he a sinless man? Or did he, was he tempted and ultimately he gave way to sin? And so for us here at some Point, we would say God, God sent his son, and though he was in the flesh and though he was tempted, he never sinned. So he was perfect in every way. Then the question you have to ask yourself then, not only about Jesus, is truly he the son of God? And we would say, yes, not only is he the son of God, but Colossians chapter 1 would say that he is ultimately the supremacy of God. That if you want to see God in a body, you look to him. He is the fulfillment of who God is in the flesh. And then when we think about who Jesus is, we would also say that Jesus is the only means to salvation. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14, verse 6. Is that what you believe about Jesus? Because we live in a culture and ultimately a world where a lot of you would say, well, there's a lot of ways to heaven. But the believer has to be standing firm in this, saying, No, there's only one way, and God's word points to us very clearly. There is a person who is the demonstration of Jesus in the flesh who came, lived among us, identified as us, in the sense that he was tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. Hebrews 4:15. So he's our high priest, our high priest. He is our prophet, he is our king. He is all the fulfillment of what we desire to see in God. We can't see God, he's spiritual, but we could see. And ultimately, the disciples could touch the person and the work of Jesus, and he was perfect. So what do you believe about Jesus? That's your worldview. What do you believe about sin? Does sin ultimately separate every single person on the planet from God? And do you believe that? Is is there no one righteous, or are we all not that bad? And ultimately, if we just kind of have some spiritual renew or renewals in ourselves over the course of our lifetime, can we just kind of work our way to God somehow by being a good person? Well, the Bible would say, through the lens of a biblical worldview, is no. Like, there is not one righteous, not even one. That we've all sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God. As a result of that, we have to have a mediator and a high priest, one who reconciles us to God and ultimately works on our behalf. We would say, that's Jesus Christ. So what do you believe about him? And then not only that, where do you figure out this belief? And we would say that comes from God's word. Well, what do you believe about God's word? Is it a mixture of stories and fables? Is it half truths? Or would you say, no, like we believe this is God's word. And it's without no mixture of errors. And that ultimately God uses it to guard and guide our lives. What do you believe about it? That's a really important thing. And so when you think about the belt of truth, it is you developing what you believe and know to be true based off of God's word. And so the belt of truth fastened around your waist is your worldview. It is how you have conversations in the workplace. It is ultimately how you even respond to mankind. So what do you believe about mankind? Is every single person in this room and ultimately out of this room, do they all have intrinsic value and worth under God? And don't be wrong, there are a lot of us in this room that you run across people and, and it certainly makes you question humanity. And some of you are going to gather with people at Thanksgiving and you're going to call them family and you're, it, it causes you to question humanity. But at the end of the day, how do we respond to such people based off of a worldview that is biblical? Well, it's Psalm 139, that every single person is fearfully and wonderfully made. That God knew them and ultimately knit them together in their mother's womb before even one of their days came to be. So as a result of that, then that means that we welcome people of different shapes, sizes, and colors, right? That ultimately we see past things that others can't see past. Because of the grace in which we receive from Christ, we give grace, and ultimately we realize that people have intrinsic worth and value from the time they're in their mother's womb to the time they return to dust. And it's regardless of where they've come from, what they've done, what they wear, what they look like, what they make, because that's what God reminds us of. Now, all the while, we're taking that as a as one of our worldviews, and we're also trying to sprinkle in the truth of God's word with people who don't understand it. And so we wanna be winsome, and we wanna be wise, we wanna be careful, we wanna be caring, we wanna be loving. But at the same time, our message is of reconciliation. We want a broken world to find healing and hope. We want sick people to be introduced to the great physician. And that's what the word of God does for us if you believe that is your worldview. And that's the question you got to ask is what, what do I base truth on? Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15 that we ought to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ. That means how do you respond when you're called into question or when somebody wants to debate with you and you think it's a little bit trivial, the reality is, is there's got to be some basis of truth for you. What is it? In a world that everything is relative, what is your truth? And where is it found? That's what he says, to stand firm. And so when you look at the belt of truth, friends, it's not something you just pray on. I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray that God would guard and guide you and ultimately help you to have a resolute stand, but you can pray all you want. But if you don't study God's word, I've never seen this to work through a process of osmosis. So you don't just lay in bed, slap this thing up over the top, and go, Lord, I hope you use it. It's like the praying teenager. And friends, I'm with teenagers quite often this season of my life. It's like a praying teenager. I'm going to pray. I'm going to throw a Hail Mary, hoping I pass this test, but I haven't studied for it once. I can do all things, Brandon, through Christ who strengthens me. Okay, let's see. And then they're dumbfounded when they made a 45. Did you work at that? Did you study? No, but I prayed. Prayer is not ringing the bell. Ding, 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 ding. Hoping that he'll attend to you. Prayer is as a bondservant, you attending to the things of God. We'll touch on that more in a minute. But I think the key is, is yes, you can pray to put on the armor of God. But friends, if you're not trained, what are you praying for? So be trained with the belt of truth. Get a solid worldview. You go, man, my my worldview's weak. Hey, get somebody that you say, hey, will you mentor me in a handful of areas of Scripture? Hey, will you teach me a few things? Will you spend some time with me? Hey, do that. What a great response. It goes on in verse 14, the latter part, and it says, and also having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate um, is what is actually the word that you and I, it's in the Greek, is just thorax. It's where we get the word that we would say in our culture, thorax, right? Uh, but what is it? It just protects basically from, from the neck all the way down to the navel. It, it just protects you. It, all your vital organs are protected through the breastplate of righteousness. Friends, how does somebody Put on righteousness through the belt of truth. How do you and I have righteousness in our life? We learn to walk in God's ways. Psalm 119, 105, how can a young man keep his way pure? Do you hear the question? How does a young man, how does a young woman who's 14 keep her way pure? How does a young man who's 17 or 19 keep his way pure? By living according to the word of God. That's righteousness. Righteousness is putting on God by living according to the belt of truth. They partner together, friends. They're they're not interwoven, but they certainly work together. So the belt of truth girds up all of these things. And ultimately, the breastplate of righteousness is applying God's righteousness based off of your learnings from his word. Verse 15, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So shoes, they're, they're what shods you in battle. It's like a cleat in a way. It's what helps you have sure footing. That, that shoe is ultimately what allows you to be ready. And the word ready there is not ready in the sense of like, um, hey, my kids before they go to school. Hey, bubs, are you ready? Oh yeah, I'm ready. Hey, why are you on my phone? I'm ready, Dad. Okay, awesome. You're ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I get out the door and I'm like, hey, dude, why don't you have your shoes on? I I mean, have you brushed your teeth? No, but I'm about to. Hold on. Hold on. Am I confused here? In the act of being ready that you prepared, like your lunch is already in your backpack, your shoes are on, you brushed your teeth. Am I confused? Any parents you identify, like you sense my passion and maybe a touch of frustration, right? Right. Because getting three kiddos out the door after they've told you that they're prepared, that's the word there in the Greek. Readiness is the word in the Greek that literally means prepared. That's what it means. It means as I'm walking out the door to go to school, I've already put my shoes on, they're tied, my lunch is in, in, in the bag, I've already brushed my teeth. and my It's not a, well, I hope, I have the best intentions to do it. And that, my friends, I think, Is why I struggle with the armor of God merely being a prayer. If the armor of God is merely a prayer, then basically what you're saying, and I am saying, and I confess, is God, I'm asking you to act on my behalf when I've done no preparation. God, I'm asking you to move, I'm asking you to respond when I've not partnered with you in any tangible way in the battle. That's the text. And I think what's so important about that is when you think about the feet of readiness, it's given by the gospel of peace. And so the gospel brings peace, but it also promotes readiness. And so the question is, is, are you ready? If the enemy was to attack you right now, are you ready for a response? Do you know your Bible? Do you know how to get through it? Do you know who you'd go to? If everything gets a little bit tough in life, things get a little bit hairy, circumstances kind of begin to cave on on, on into you a little bit. Hey, where am I going? Who's going with me? Who's on my team? Who am I fighting a battle with? Friends, that I think is the, the context of the local church. And so we need to be able to stand. Stand in God's grace. Stand in the good news of the gospel. Stand in God's word. We need to stand in courage and in strength. We need to be able to stand in fortitude and in dignity. We need to be able to stand in transparency. We need to be able to stand together in unity, which is the purpose of our Better Together series. In a couple of weeks, we need to be able to stand in the perfect and the complete will of God that we find within his word that equips us to be ready for battle. Verse 16, and in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, the shield of faith. Um, that word in the the shield literally just talks about a a, a large, oblong, four-sided shield. In that day and time, it would have been a, a very large shield, and what it would have done is it would have protected you, namely, from flaming arrows. That's what Paul says. It's the shield of faith. The word faith literally is the word pistis, which means a conviction of what is true. So if the belt of truth is what is true, the the shield of faith is a conviction of what you know to be true. Isn't that cool? Like you don't have any of these parts, these objects, these defensive weapons without the belt of truth. And so the belt of truth is what equips you to be ready to move and to act and respond. The belt of truth is what allows you to have a shield of faith. Faith is believing when you cannot see. Faith is trusting when God almost in your spirit doesn't feel trustworthy. Trustworthy. But ultimately, God's word as your guide helps you realize that that is more important than some of the feelings that may toss you to and fro, Ephesians 4. And so when you see that there is a crafty, cunning enemy in Ephesians 4 who wants to toss you back and forth, do you know what that word is? Crafty, cunning, a dice-playing cheater is what it is in the Greek. Back in the day in high school, you wanted to win a little money. You played dice. Some of you were not sinners like I was. And so thank, I thank God for that. But I can remember you throw some dice and you hope to win a little bit of money. It's never good to throw dice with a cheater. That's what the enemy is. And the shield of faith protects you against his flaming arrows. What are his arrows? They're darts. They come in the form of javelin. Missiles. They have different shapes, sizes. They come in a different variation and form. Some have greater impact than others. But at the end of the day, his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. He is to, his goal is to attack you in such ways that people would question your character. That people would question your motives. And ultimately, if he can distort other people in the way they see or think about you, if he can induce or ensnare or entrap you, through a variety of hardships. That is his goal, friends. And so I want you to realize that his goal is not merely to injure you. His goal is to kill you. If he he can get you to leave the faith as a result of conflict in the church, he would desire to do that. If he would get you to question the goodness of your spouse, his goal would do that. Like he he wants to destroy your family. Your kids, marriages, our our education system. Like he, he has a desire to do those things. So how do we how do we prevent that? The shield of faith. That's what extinguishes the flaming arrows of the evil one. But it doesn't stop there. Also, verse 17, it's the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is what guard and guides our 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 minds. And listen, there are two areas that you're definitely susceptible to even as we leave this room. And one of them is your heart and one of them is your mind. And so every single night that I pray over our kiddos, I pray every single night, God, would you guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus? It's a prayer that we ought to be praying consistently and fervently. God, would you guard my heart and mind? And friends, I don't pray that just for my kids. I pray it every day for me. It almost feels too routine, but I genuinely am like, Lord, you have to guard my heart and my mind. We'll talk more about that next week. We're closing next week with how we guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, specifically how we protect the battlefield of our mind. Because if you knew what I thought, you wouldn't let me be your pastor. And if I knew what you thought sometimes, I wouldn't let you come to church here. (laughs) And so how do we renew our minds? How do we work through the battlefield of our minds? We'll talk about it next week. It's worth being here. And it says, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we'll kind of begin to wrap up with this. And the sword of the Spirit. Now, which is the word of God. Now, Paul cleverly uses two words here that you can't miss. And if you weren't diving into this pretty closely, you'd miss it. But he uses the word, word there, and the word, word, y'all got that? The word, word, is mahira, which means knife. It's where we would get the English word machete from. Y'all know what a machete is? Uh, We had some teenagers over at our house the other night and uh, let, let them do a camp out. One of the craziest things I've done in the last 10 years. I probably won't do it for another 10. But can you imagine unleashing them with a machete? Like, what will they take down? Everything, right? Uh, and so, But a machete is a sharp knife, but it's not like what we think of when we think word. So typically, when you see the word of God, it's the word logos. So when you see John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, it's talking about the word of God and the word there is logos which literally means the whole counsel of God's word and it's referring to the person of Jesus as the word. But what's interesting is Paul doesn't choose that word. He uses the word mahira here which doesn't mean large sword, the word of God, but it means something less. Then he partners that with like the the word the sword there as a machete. Then he says the word and that word is not logos but it's the word rhema, which literally means utterance. Now, why do I tell you that? It's because you and I know that the Word of God is important. Why is it important? Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, For the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And when you think about the, the Word of God, you might think, oh, the Word of God, it's the sword, you know? And when you get in a troublesome situation, you may think, well, I'm going to go to my Bible. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open it up and I got time to do that. But friends, can I just tell you that I'm not sure that's what Paul meant. Matter of fact, I know it's not. You know what Paul meant? Paul meant that he would use the mahirah and a quick word, a rhema. This thing's so small i fit in my backpack. But hey, you don't want to mess with me today. You got I me? Mean? Because I got this. <laughs> now look, this right here is an actual replica made by a friend of mine in our church. And he literally hammered this out for us so that we have an example. This is what you would call in in the Roman days, first century, as a uh, pugio. It literally is just a a knife. They would be from 12 to 17 inches in length. Uh, And that's what the Romans would use in that day and time. But when Paul uses the word rhema, and he uses the word mahira. he's referring to something like this, quick. It's a quick draw. You remember when Matthew chapter four, Jesus in the wilderness, he was led there by the spirit and he was tempted. The first temptation in Matthew chapter four that Satan gave him was to take and to turn stones into bread. And, And you might remember that Jesus responded and you know what he said? He says, as it is written. And then what did he say after that? He says, a man shall not live on bread alone, but what? On every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the second temptation that he gave, he took him to the pinnacle of his, of his steeple, and he goes, hey, listen, why don't you throw yourself off, and God's, God's angels will come, and they'll, 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 they'll be concerned with you. And then, do you know what he said next? As it is written, Jesus responded. You all know what he responded? He says, again, It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then the third temptation, he goes, hey, listen, if you'll just bow down to me, I'll give you all the kings of the earth, everything that you can see. And Jesus says, again, as it's written, and then he responds and he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In a quick time of temptation, it is important that you and I write God's word on the tablet of our hearts. It is a question that we ought to equally ask as much as, hey, what are you reading God's word? We should be asking the question, hey, what are you memorizing from God's word? Which if I were to catch you in the lobby, which means y'all might want to bolt today pretty quick. <laughs> hey, what, what, are you, what are you memorizing in God's word? It's something that every single week in our kids' ministry and in our student ministry, we put in our curriculum. Every single week, we're encouraging students and kiddos from 18 years old down to memorize God's word. Parents, you can have those resources and you ought to be asking your kiddos about it, but join them in that work. Why? So that we have a quick response in times where we are challenged. Why? Because God's word is what trains men and women to be useful For his cause. It's what helps young men stay pure. Matter of fact, Psalm 119, great passage on God's word, verse 11 just says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Proverbs chapter 2, or Proverbs chapter 7, verses 2 and 3 just says, Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Write God's word on the tablet of your heart. Why? Because it's what helps you be ready and girded for the enemy's attacks. And friends, the question is not, will the enemy attack you? Or if he will. The question is when he will. Is he gonna attack? Absolutely. When will he do it? I don't know. For a lot of us in this room, he's gonna attack our minds as soon as we walk out of this place. For some of us, he's going to attack us with a temptation. But the reality is, is he does not want you to live firmly planted in God's word, doing God's things. And I encourage you to do that. I'll close with verse 18. It just says this, And praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The best soldiers of God are alert. They are watchmen on the post. They have been forged through the fire. They have been beaten. They have been trained. They have been skilled, and they are watchmen on the post. They do not sleep, though they're tired. They are diligent, and they are disciplined, even though they have the desire to be lazy and slothful. God's watchmen are strong men who know God's word. It's like being on offense. And the best offense is to keep the ball and to keep the defense on the field, having to do who, who's the greater defender? You or the enemy? Why not be you? Why not cause him to flee? Why not draw near to God? Why not draw near through his word and cause the enemy to run? Did y'all know that's possible? It is possible. And I encourage you to be a part of that. How are you doing that? Through the armor of God and also through prayer. When do we pray? It says at all times. At all times. So when you think about prayer, what kind of prayer is useful? Well, every prayer. Group prayer. Individual prayer. Silent prayer. Shouting prayer. Walking prayer. Kneeling prayer. Eloquent prayer. Groaning prayer. Constant prayer. Every prayer. Fervently praying over and over and over. Praying and praying and praying about all things and all ways and all all seasons. Faithfully asking God to show you where he's at work and how you can join them. And be on guard. I'll close with this. Winston Churchill said this to Britain in the early days of the Second World War. He says, I I want to drop a word of caution. He says, for next to cowardice and treachery is overconfidence leading to neglect and slothfulness. Those both are the worst of wartime crimes. He says, one wartime crime is being afraid and going AWOL, being a treacherous, Bigot for your country because you are scared and you are a coward. He said the other one is overconfidence that leads to neglect and to apathy. And friends, I, if I'm honest, we're probably one or two a lot of times, right? We either shrink back in fear or we're apathetic because we don't believe that we're living in a war. But may God really grow us up and mature us. May He help us be His men and women for His purposes. And may you just be reminded that there is not only an enemy, but that enemy can only touch your physical body. He cannot ultimately have control over your soul, which goes to be with the Lord. For some of you, you've been watching the Chosen series. Um, Season 3, episodes 1 and 2 came out in theaters this weekend. I got a, a a very unusual date night with my bride last night. It was fantastic. Don't want to run it for you, but here's the theme of of season three, and that you see so prominently in view, and that is the cost of following Jesus. Something that, as I walked out of the theater, I said the thing that struck me most as I looked at my bride. We were walking back. I said, "Is that there is such a difference?" as to what we are being called in American Christianity to what Jesus seemed to be calling his followers to. Like, we love the idea of faith and blessing, and we love the idea that that there's not an enemy who can ever harm or touch you, but the reality is, is there is an enemy, and he can harm, and he can touch you. One of the things that Jesus said in this display of the chosen, he just said to these men, After he says, it it may cost you everything. He says, but don't harm or, or don't fear the one who merely can harm your body. But ultimately has no control and cannot harm the spirit. And I'm like, yes, yes. A real enemy, a real battle, and we can be real men and women trained for those purposes. Ultimately, being ambassadors for our king until he calls us home. And may we do that well. Man, may we do that well. Let me pray for us, church. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this text. Thank you for my friends who, by God's grace, even gave me a few moments to share with them. Like, what a privilege. Lord, thank you so much for my friends who showed up this morning to hear the word of God taught. Thank you. like that. That's just such a blessing to me. It enriches my soul deeply. I needed it and I thank you for it. I pray that your word would go out and I pray, Lord, that it would land on fertile soil. I pray that the seed would take root and ultimately that you would yield a harvest of righteousness for your namesake and ultimately for your glory alone. As we go from this place, may we have thankful hearts and may we just realize that you are the only one Worthy of worship and praise and thanksgiving this week. And so, Lord, when we get confused, when we lose sight, would you just help us to take hold and ultimately realize that if the eye is the lamp of the body, the only way the whole body's healthy is if our eye is healthy. Lord, the best way I know to keep my eyes healthy is to keep my eyes on you and not the world. And so, Lord, I pray you'd help us. To you be the glory. And may all glory alone be for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.